Okay, so it is the beginning of summer. You're going to be doing some vacation travel? <laughs> All right, you travelers, I got a little trivia for you. Where is this and what is it? What's the name of it and where is it? I'm going to show you this photograph. We've got a free vacation, if you can actually, maybe I shouldn't say that. Nobody has gotten it yet in a service. Uh, it's, it's got a name and it's got a location. Oh, somebody said Egypt. Very good. Close. What? It's named after a princess of Egypt, but it what, had nothing to do with her, but it's named after. It's called Cleopatra's Needle, and it's on the border, the banks of the Thames River in London, England. It was, uh, so, so whoever said Egypt, it was close. That's where it was made. That's not where it is now. Actually, there's a twin of this in, in New York, but this one in London is unique for a number of reasons. It was gifted to England in 1819 by the ruler of Egypt in gratitude and commemoration of Lord Nelson's victory in the Battle of the Nile. However, it was not brought to England right away because the shipping was so exorbitant. This is before Amazon Prime and you had to pay for shipping. And Egypt didn't want to pay for the shipping and England didn't want to pay for the shipping. And finally, in 1877, they shipped it over in 1878. It was installed right there on the bank of the, the, the Thames. And you see the concrete base below that. Underneath that is a fairly large time capsule. Now, would any of you like to ask, what's in the time capsule? Glad you asked. So let me tell you, it's, uh, uh, one of the things that struck me is that there are 12 photographs of the most beautiful English women of the day. What? How in the world do they come up with the, who, who those 12 are? But that's it's a set of 12, there's a box of hairpins, there's a box of cigars. Don't know they'd be any good anymore, but there's several tobacco pipes, set of imperial weights, a baby's bottle, uh, some British coins, a, a portrait of Queen Victoria, a written history of the transport of the monument, uh, an example of the pulleys and the hydraulic jacks that were used. I mean, there's a ton of stuff. But the first time I heard about it, what gripped to me the most and shocked me the most was that they had some, some Bibles in several languages. I, and and I've, I've seen different uh, versions of how many Bibles, but two or three. But it wasn't even that. What it was that gripped me, and the uh, reason I'm bringing it up today, is they decided, let's do, have a verse of Scripture. And it's translated into 215 languages. So there are 215 translations of a particular verse in the Bible. Anyone got to guess which verse? John 3.16. You see, a lot of these, these people in England, they were fans of Tim Tebow uh, at the time, and they had seen him where, just kidding. John 3.16, what is it about that verse, most famous verse in all of Scripture? Yeah, Tim Tebow wearing it, and you see it uh, in ball games. You, Billy Graham, a hero of mine, after every media, right before every media interview he would do, every TV interview he would do, his, his media guy, a guy named Larry Ross, was with him for 23 years. But before he joined the Billy Graham Association, he was in uh, secular media. And so he noticed something about the way that Dr. Graham would get prepared for his interviews. When you sit down and do a TV interview, they usually do a mic check and say, 
You know, could you just talk into the mic? And uh, I'll do that if I'm speaking places. And I'm a little ashamed to say that what I do is what Larry Ross said most, most guys do is they'll just count or do the alphabet. And that's what I'll do if I'm doing a sound check. I count to 20 and then show people how mathematically gifted I am by, I am by counting backwards. Uh, and what Billy Graham would do when they would say, hey, would you check the mic? Uh, let's do a mic check, Dr. Graham. He would recite a verse of Scripture. Anybody got an idea of what verse of Scripture he would recite? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. When asked about why does He do that, He said, because if I mess up the interview, at least the cameraman will have gotten the gospel before the interview began. And He was saying, it's the gospel. And it really is. It's the summation of the gospel. Some people have referred to it as the greatest verse in the Bible, and they give a reason why. I have a sheet of paper in my Bible where, that has these different phrases marked out. Why is it the greatest verse? Well, look at it phrase by phrase. For God, there's an indication of the greatest good in the entire universe. So loved, the greatest action. The world, which is the greatest need, that He gave. So this verse is about the greatest example. His one and only Son is about the greatest sacrifice, that whoever is the greatest invitation believes in Him, the greatest response, shall not perish, the greatest horror, but have eternal life, the greatest gift. If you want to understand Christianity, if you want to understand a walk with Jesus, if you want to understand what will be the pivot point that my rhythm, my cadence as a human being can change, spend some time unpacking John 3.16, which is what we're going to do today. If you've got your Bible, turn to John chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, you can read on the screens. If you don't own a Bible, uh, ask us back at the welcome desk and we'll be glad to give you one. John chapter 3, starting with verse 16, going through verse 21. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, in these next verses, actually, He's amplifying on what He's already said. The summation of it is that first verse, but then each of these verses following keys in on something in that verse. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love to darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now we're in the midst of a series going through John's Gospel. We're calling the series Awaken because that's the heartbeat of the Gospel of John. And the reason it's a heartbeat of John's Gospel is the heartbeat of Jesus. He didn't come to start a religion. He came to awaken people. He didn't come to get us from being irreligious to religious, but from being, de but from being dead to being alive. He's saying, awaken as a human being to who you're called to be. The invitation of the gospel is not an invitation to religiosity, but it's an invitation to restore humanity to the glory of God. And so John, at the end of his gospel, said, I've written this that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing you may have life in His name. 
The whole notion of life is not whether your lungs are breathing or hearts beating alone. To be alive as a human being is to be alive to God. We're spiritually dead, still capable of great love and creativity and laughter and beauty. The list goes on and on, but it's muted. And Jesus came, John chapter 10, verse 10. He said, let me tell you why I've come. The thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy. He comes to undermine the ultimate purpose and intention for your being a created man or a woman. But I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. It's not a little religious trick, positive mental attitude, or self-improvement. It's a gift that Jesus comes to bring. And this whole notion of life, the anchor point, is relationship. We talked about the ABCs of being fully alive. You can find it on our, our website. I mentioned it earlier. I asked you what G stood for. How about I? Does anybody remember what I stands for in those ten? Intimacy with God. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus makes it real clear. He says, this is eternal life. Eternal life is not synonymous with heaven. We'll experience eternal life in heaven in an undiluted, undeterred way, no longer encumbered by our sin in the fall. But eternal life is knowing God, walking and relating intimately with Him. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. So the context of John is this invitation to life. Now let me give you the context of John 3.16, what's just happened. If you've been walking with us, you know these last couple of weeks, actually two weeks ago and three weeks ago, last week, what an amazing job Rob and our, our students did. Are you kidding me? It's awesome. You know, but Rob, when you do such a good job, you know you're going to have to do it again. So we're going to have you, you guys got to do that again, right? Huh? Deal? Here we go. But the context as we looked at a couple of weeks ago is that we already understand that the life of the gospel, this engaging people to be fully alive has everything to do with an intimate relationship with Jesus. But what we tend to do as human beings is we have undermined the gospel and turned it into something that reeks of religiosity, which Jesus was heartbroken over and despised. Jesus cleared the temple one day because what had happened, the temple was this embodiment of what Jesus was coming to do permanently. The temple was a preview to prepare the way. The temple was a place where people could come and relate with God, not having their sins stand against them because of the sacrificial system. All of that was a precursor to Jesus. He was coming to fulfill the temple and then abolish it. But it still is precious, and it's a place where people are meant to relate with, with God. He comes in, and they've turned it into a place of religiosity, uh, money changing, bilking the poor, pushing out the Gentiles, it becoming all about you going through these rituals. Now, the images that we've used over these last few weeks are a gumball machine and a table. Think vending machine here. This it's what I want you to have in your mind regarding religiosity. This is what I want you to have in your mind regarding the relationship. It's a difference between practicing religiosity and pursuing relationship. And what was going on in the temple is that they had turned it into a bunch of rules and regulation. The people that Jesus reserved His greatest ire for we're not, quote, sinners, but the religious crowd who did the pretend thing. And Matthew 23 says, you guys gussy everything up on the outside, 
Like white, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look okay on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You're missing it. But we have, we, we have a tendency to gravitate in this direction. These last few weeks, we've been looking at the differences between practicing religiosity and pursuing a relationship with Jesus. And this religiosity, the Christianity, is a thing about its external, just going through the motions. The whole notion of church, it's about consumerism and convenience and, hey, uh, what's going to happen to me? My posture to other people is very calloused. My approach before God is that I I don't think he, he, I don't have a high view of him and so I can do all these works. How religiosity works is I do all these things and I say, okay, God, here you go. You've got to enable me to have my little flavor of gumball. I'll do my rules, I'll do my rituals, and we've turned it into something that's suffocating. Jesus came to invite us to a dance. He came to invite us to this banquet. Not the dull, monotonous, suffocating drumbeat of legalism, but the liberating, beautiful dance to the music and symphony of the gospel. But it's amazing what human beings do, which is why Jesus was so upset going through the temple. All the man-made rules and the things that were oppressing people. Does behavior matter? Over here to relate, of course, but my behavior is a result of my relationship with Jesus. Over here, my behavior is to impress other people and maybe impress God a little bit, but I'm going to do this and God, you better do that. This has prompted some discussions. Several people, three or four people have stopped me in the community about these, the comparison between these two and have shared stories of their journey. And I love, I, I love hearing those, and sort of love hearing those because they're, they're heartbreaking. One in particular, a young woman, she uh, went to, grew up in a very legalistic, fundamentalist background that was all about this. You know, you got to do this, this, and this, and you'll get accepted, and you know, God's impressed. She went to a, a, a college that was sponsored by the denomination that she grew up in. Lots of rules, one of which, and this is not a long time ago, that's 10, 15 years ago, women couldn't wear pants. She wore jeans one night to a fast food place with some friends. She was called into the administration office, and he sat her down and he said, I need you to answer a question for me. Were you wearing pants a couple of days ago? She said, yes. He said, I'm going to ask you again. I want you to give a different answer. Because if you were wearing pants, I'm going to have to kick you out. So let me ask you again, were you wearing pants a couple of days ago? She said, yes. He said, that is not the answer I want you to give me. And she said, wait a minute, you want me to tell you I wasn't wearing pants? He says, if you tell me you weren't wearing pants, then I won't have to kick you out. She and said, very calmly, she said, I didn't do it in a, in a rebellious way. I just said, can I ask you a question? What? I don't understand. You're telling me that wearing pants is worse than lying? You're saying it's okay to lie about wearing pants, but it's not okay to wear pants? He had no answer other than some veins to bulge on the side of his neck and his fist to pound on the desk and say, get out of here. She didn't leave campus. She went to chapel a couple of days later and felt a grip on her arm, turned around, and it was this administrator furious and saying, you are kicked out of the school, leave. That's the kind of stuff 
that broke the heart of Jesus. That's why he went through the temple courts. When we start doing those things, I asked, I asked this young woman, I said, well, how, how? She's got a vibrant walk with Jesus now. I said, how did that happen? She says, well, I finally met him. Because the Jesus of this place is very different than the Jesus who really is. Some of you are not, you, you abandoned this long ago. I've talked to several of you. you. You were raised in some type of environment. You see the whole vending machine approach of religiosity, and you realize that can't be what Jesus is about. So you've stayed away from everything, including the gospel. And the invitation Jesus says to either these people or the people that rejected religiosity is say, let's do relationship together. changes my view of Christianity. It's, more, it's internal. It's not external. It begins on the inside. Let's go back to that chart. My view of church becomes one of calling. My view of other people, I'm no longer callous. You see, in religious institutions, I was chewing on this even in the middle of the night. What happens when we opt for this and going through outward motions, it makes us callous. When I'm sitting at this table being treated by, by Jesus the way he treats me to get me here, it changes the way that I treat other people. Over here turns people into judgmental. It can breed a callousness and even an ugliness. I know this will shock you. Anybody ever heard of church fights? Where does that come from? It comes from people who aren't grasping the symphony, the music of this, and going through outward motions without inward vibrancy. So there is this Pharisee. The Pharisees are one of the top two religious groups in Judaism in the first century. And this guy named Nicodemus was a leader among the Pharisees. He was here, but Jesus had gotten his attention. So he came to Jesus in the middle of the night, under, under the cloak of darkness. It was not good for his career. But he said, Jesus, I can tell you're from God. And as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Jesus said, okay, the way to go from here, or even over here, not even religiosity, but just opposed to all of it. All of this is lostness. He says, the way to go from here to here is to be born again. You're dead. We're dead in our trespasses and our sins. He says, for you to be freed up, my spirit has to come take up residence within you. And you need to come to life as a human being. Nicodemus said, really? And in the midst of that dialogue is where we find John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Would you read it with me? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. When you begin to go through that text, you start seeing the heartbeat of the gospel. It, 
You want to know what's underneath this tablecloth? A table. What's underneath the table? Four table legs. How many of these table legs are necessary for this to be a table that functions? This verse gives the four table legs to this relationship. This table of a relationship. If I'm going to sit at this table with Jesus and do life, do my, my recreation, my job, my relationships, in the freshness and the vibrancy of this life that Jesus wants me to have, it will involve me fully embracing John 3.16 that has four realities, all of which must be grasped. If I miss one of them, like, let's, uh, let's try this. That's still not going to work. I can get all three if I don't have that. So go back through the text and look at it phrase by phrase. There are four key ingredients. First, there's for God so loved the world. That's the first table act. Second one, that he gave his one and only son. Third, that whoever believes in him. Fourth, shall not perish, but have eternal life. What does it look like for me to move away from the, the temptation to superficiality and religiosity to come to authenticity and relationship? Something as simple as John 3.16, embracing these four. If I want to see this table renewed, this table of intimacy and relationship with Jesus renewed, it'll involve me regularly engaging with all four realities. The first one is the love of God. I'm not going to be able to sit at this table until I really am grasping that I'm loved. For God so tolerated the world. No. I think it was Max Lucado who said, if, if God had a refrigerator, your, your picture would be on it. And it has nothing to do with your worthiness. It has everything to do with what He has said is worthy. The price tag on you is immense. You can see by what he did. One of the huge characteristics of this group of people, even though outwardly they'll say, God's really impressed with me because I'm doing all the right things. On the inside, there's a cesspool, a suffocation. that I'm not doing enough. And these people throw bricks at one another all the time saying you're not doing enough instead of inviting people into the dance of grace. You see over and over in Scripture descriptions of God's love using the word great. And the Greek word that's there is a powerful word. Do you know if, if I could, I would. I'd come up to every one of you. It'd just be a really long service. Do you know how much God loves you? Do you know? Do you really know? If I really grasp how much 
He loves me. How loved I am, it's transformational. No, 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 no. Not that I'm having to do this stuff to get him to love me. But I believe that he loves me. Not that I've got to jump through hoops. Hurt people hurt people. Loved people love people. And when I know that I'm loved, I love. When I know I've received unmerited favor, I learn to give it. When I receive grace, I start giving grace. He loves you. And us as human beings want to say, but, yes, but, no but. He loves you. How do we know? It's not just the love of God I've got to, to grasp. It's the Son of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. I've got to grapple with and grasp who Jesus is. Not the Jesus that I want. Not a little mascot that will be impressed with my religiosity, but the King of all creation. This is the one who was and is and is to come. He's the Alpha and the Omega, but he's also the one that says, Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door of your life and I knock. If you respond, I'm going to come in and I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to, to fellowship with you. I'm going to walk with you. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. The Greek word for one that's translated one and only there is monogenes. Mono, one. Genes, kind. He's one of a kind. John uses, it four, uses it, that word four times in the Gospel, one time in his epistles to describe this Jesus that is unique. He is not one of a smorgasbord of religious offerings. He is the King of all creations. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was before all things. Colossians chapter 1, Paul describes who this Jesus is in no uncertain terms. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. He's not a religious mascot. The firstborn over all creation, not the originator of some religiosity. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Get that. He says, I took your death upon me. I died on the cross, paying the penalty, that, that penalty that you and I live out every day until we trust Christ. He says, then I rose again from the dead. And Paul says, he's the firstborn of this new humanity, this new creation. I lost my place. So that in everything he might have the supremacy, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. But he wants to hang with you. If I'm going to come to this table of relationship, 
It's a fresh, daily engagement with the love of God that's exemplified through His grace. And with the Son of God who gave Himself up. 1 John chapter 4 said, you want to know what love looks like? Verse 9, this is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God. This group really takes pride and people, hey, you want to know how much I love God? And it's not a love. It's not, it's a, it's a religious exercise. The big deal is that He loved me and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Yeah, I love him back, but he leads the dance. But I've got to have this third table leg. It's not just those two, it keeps going. For me to really engage in this relationship will not just involve me daily engaging with and grasping the love of God for me, grasping who the Son of God is and what He came to do, but grasping belief in God. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes, believing is something all of us do. We've talked about it numerous times. You, so you guys remember me talking about believing in a chair? Three things involved in that. I'm appraising whether it's credible. That's what I do with Jesus on a daily basis. Are you really who you claim to be or not? Looking, but then, uh, but then agreeing that it's relevant to my need right now, that I'm, I'm tired. Agreeing that I need Jesus because of my sin. But then action. And saying, I'm going to trust you on a daily basis. I'm going to trust you for this right now. So as I'm at this table with him, He's saying, Matt, do you know how much I love you? And I say, yeah, but. And he says, no buts. Do you know how much I love you? Okay. Game changer. Do you know who I am? It's not just some other human being that's saying, I love you. This is the king of all creation saying, I'm loving you enough to restore you to what I originally intended. It's a process that begins the moment that I have a seat at this table and it will continue my whole life and be completed when I'm no longer hindered by a fallen body in a fallen world. In the meantime, what connects me with the, the, the dance to that symphony is my belief in Him. It's, it, belief is necessary to come to Christ but it's also a belief that's necessary to experience that life of the gospel. To come alive, belief is necessary. To be alive, to experience the life of the gospel is necessary, which is why that last table leg is grasping the life of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, love of God, Son of God, that whoever believes, does that whoever apply to you? One of the most important things about your life, in your life and mine, am I one of the whoever's? And if I am, the life of God becomes part of who I am as a human being. And the life of God is not just lung breathing, heart beating, it's this transformation in my existence. It's not just something 
for the future, it's something now. John 5, 24, Jesus says, truly, very truly, I, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over at that moment from death to life. When I engage with him and I sit down at this table, I am no longer dead, I'm alive. Death has been arrested and canceled out in my journey. And I've got to unpack it. Some days better than others. Some days I'm engaging with his love more than others. Some days I'm believing more than others. Some days I'm exalting Jesus more than others. Some days I'm experiencing the life of Christ more than others. But every day is a day of growth in which I'm saying, I want to relate with you in such a way, Jesus that I experience the life you want me to have, which is your life in me. And I want to ask our band to come out right now because we're going to celebrate. It's worth celebrating, don't you think? It's worth proclaiming. So this is how we're going to finish this gospel service. Two things. We're going to pray together in unison. Pray, and you've seen some of this, this prayer before, we've used it at different times, and then we're going to sing. In praying and singing, in both ways, we're doing something. We're proclaiming the gospel. And we're proclaiming the gospel not in a religious, religiosity way, but in a relationship way. And the way that we're going to pray is out of, of, of John 17, 3, that says, this is eternal life that they may know you. So if what John, Jesus is saying in that verse is we're to relate with God in such a way on a daily basis, relating with Him. It's a good thing I didn't back up and, and sit down because that chair is on there. But relating with Him in such a way that it changes everything about my life. You guys remember a song we sang it a little while ago? This changes everything. Let's pray about that. So you guys ready to pray and then sing? Huh? Yes. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Everyone, use this liturgy. Read along with me, but don't just read it. Pray it. Jesus, would you enable me to more deeply embrace the eternal life that you want me to experience by lovingly, submissively, and vibrantly relating with you in such a way that it awakens my heart addresses my longings, expands my thinking, deepens my relationships, broadens my emotions, permeates my work, enhances my recreation, activates my heart, amplifies my laughter, authenticates my tears, heals my brokenness, shapes my decisions, stimulates my impact, fuels my compassion, everyone now, motivates my justice, unleashes my generosity, multiplies my creativity, directs my days, settles my shalom, solidifies my meaning, fulfills my story, leads my journey, solidifies my destiny, restores my humanity, and secures me for eternity. Amen. Amen.